Hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Psalm 16, the 16th Psalm. As you turn there, I want you to think about how you would finish, finish these sentences. Don't, don't answer out loud. But think about how this sentence would end for you. I feel most content, or excuse me, let me say that again. I will feel most content and most happy when. How would you finish that? Here's another one. I will feel more secure when. Here's a similar one. I think I will finally feel settled and established when. My guess is that you wouldn't have to think long to know the answers, to know how to finish those sentences for yourself. I think it's natural for most of us to live most of our lives looking forward. We look forward to a time when we will be more content than we are now. We look forward to a time when we'll be more secure than we are now. We will look forward to a time when we will feel more settled and more established. These are things, contentment, security, settledness, that all seem to be, for most of us, somewhere out there. I know this has been true of me, and, and my guess is that it would probably be true of you. I can go back, pick a time in my life. I can go back to that time in my life and tell you, during that period of my life, what I was looking forward to that I thought was going to bring me contentment, security, or settledness. There was always a next chapter that I kind of had set my hope on. I think most of us do this. We have points in the future that we look to as the point where there will be more joy, more security, and a greater sense of settledness. It's always just ahead, isn't it? When I graduate, when I get a better job, when I get married, when we have children, when we no longer have children, maybe... It's when I have better friends. I'm, there's a better friend out there that's coming. When my family dynamic improves or changes. When I'm in better health. When I get a promotion at work. When I retire and can finally slow down. We all have these things that are on the horizon that we trust will bring joy. And it may be true for you that there are better seasons coming. It's not wrong to hope for those things. And yet, isn't it interesting that the goalpost always keeps moving? We get to that thing we thought was the thing, and now the thing is another thing. And slowly we start to realize that it's a cycle that continues. We are all chasing joy. This morning as we go to God's word, we are in Psalm 16, and we're going to hear from David as he expresses the way in which he has found God to be his joy. I tried to summarize the psalm, and I have it there on your notes. Here's my attempt at a summary. I'm not always brave enough to try this. David is confident that when he takes refuge in God, he can experience complete satisfaction 
and fullness of joy, both now and forever. David's confident that when he takes refuge in God, he can experience complete satisfaction and fullness of joy, both now and forever. That's what we're going to consider this morning. So if you have your Bible, I don't have my Bible. I have it here. Psalm 16. Hear the word of God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom my soul delights. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The Psalm of David, and we aren't told what the situation is, We don't know exactly what's going on at this period of his life when the psalm is written. But what we see is that the psalm starts with a prayer request. David's asking God to do something. You see it there in verse 1? A short prayer request. Here it is. Two words. Preserve me. Keep me. Protect me. He's asking for safety, for security. And we don't know the details. Now, we know different things about David's life. We know there was a time in David's life when he was running literally from his life from people who wanted to kill him. He hid in caves, fleeing from those who would kill him. Maybe this is a prayer from one of those times. Save me, preserve me, rescue me. Maybe he is fearful for his life. Or perhaps he's writing from a season of spiritual weakness, emotionally depleted, and he's asking God, sustain my soul could be that as well. But regardless of what he wants to be preserved from, what we see is that he's turning to God. He says this, we keep reading, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. He's saying, God, you're the one I come to. Preserve me. I'm hiding in you. You are my refuge. I was thinking, before the tornadoes that we had in March, I never really took storms that seriously. Just didn't think about it that much. Storms come, they go, we go on. But now the way way I come most places and the way I come to church is through the neighborhood just next to ours that even now there are still houses boarded up and there's still visible signs of the tornado. So every day now I have this reminder, some storms are a big deal. Right? So on Monday night, anybody 
hear the storm on Monday night and felt like the walls were shaking at our house. And I thought, is this the time when we're supposed to go and like get safe? But everyone's asleep. And so I had this like moment, like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm taking storm serious now, but that means waking up four kids. <laughs> I didn't. It's a sense of refuge, right? We recognize times when we need to go to a place of safety. For David, he recognized God as that refuge. When he needed protection, he turned to God, praying, be my safe shelter. We've seen the request and this acknowledgement that God is the refuge. And the rest of the psalm is, is David confessing his trust. A really short request, preserve me. And then 11 verses of praise and confidence in God in which he expresses, God is my hope. God is my joy. In him, I have hope. On your notes, you'll see that we broke it down into his trust in God for the present and then his trust in God for the future. And his trust in the present, it starts there in verse 2. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, it sounds repetitive in English to say, Lord, you are my Lord. Yeah, I point this out a lot because I think it's important. If you look at your English text, that first Lord is in all caps. It represents the name of God. The second one is the, the word Adonai, Master. So he's saying, Yahweh, God, you are my Lord. You're the one I submit to. And then he gives the reason for this undivided allegiance. He says, I have no good apart from you. And, and when I first started thinking about this verse, the first thing that came to mind for me was James 1.17. Where James says, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation and there is no shadow due to change. And what we learn from James is that God gives all good things. If you have a good thing, it's from God. Everything that brings us joy or happiness finds its source in Him. And that's true, and that might be included here. But I think David's actually going a little further here. He's not only saying that all good things come from God, but he is saying that God is his good. I have no good apart from you, which is a big statement. Compared to everything else, everything I have or want, you are the true good. I have no good apart from you. Similar to what Paul says in Philippians 3, isn't it? Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You hear the emphasis there? I have other things. Paul has just laid out in Philippians 3 his list of all the things that he has obtained and achieved in his life. It's an impressive resume. And he says, but all of that 
worthless compared to knowing God. And I think that's what David is saying here. I have no good apart from you. Which is not to say, friends, that Paul and David didn't enjoy the good things of life. I think they did. And I think they enjoyed them better because they weren't relying on them to be their source of satisfaction. Does that make sense? That having God as our greatest good and God as our greatest joy frees us up to enjoy all the good things that come from his hand. And yet, most of us are guilty at times of setting our eyes on lesser things, things that are temporary. We don't acknowledge as much as we should that money goes away, looks fade, jobs are terminated, and even people are taken away from us by death. And if we have placed all of our joy and hope in things that are temporary, we will be devastated when they are gone. But there's an alternative, which is the example we see with David. If we see God as our ultimate joy, then our joy can never be shaken when the temporary things of life fade. Not to say there won't be sorrow. Because when God gives good gifts, it's sorrowful when they're gone. And yet there's this foundation that can't be shaken. It's similar to what? Asaph, another psalmist says in Psalm 73, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength, the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And that's the sentiment we see with David here. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Because his joy is in God, he finds more joy in the things and people of God. Verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. So he's satisfied in God alone, but as an extension of that, he delights in being with other people who share the same joy. Isn't it true we, we, we gravitate to people who love the same things we love? It's natural. David says, the, the people of God, the saints in the land, that's my delight. Something sweet about being with other people who love God and value him. I hope that resonates with you. Doesn't it make sense that if we value God above all, we would want to be around other people who equally value him. And that's why the, the church is such a, a sweet gift. We're called together, and we're called together to enjoy God together. And then, as an extension, to invite others to come and to join in joy with us. If you've experienced that, not only the joy of knowing God, but the joy that comes from life with others, you know how sweet it is. And this is what David's saying. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom my soul delights. His joy is not only in God, but in the, the people of God. 
His joy is increased as he shares that joy with others. Now, as I say that, I think I should add a disclaimer. Here's a disclaimer. Life with one another is not always easy. True? There's joy in living with others, and yet the others that we live with are sinners who will sin. And yet, as the people of God, we're also a people who are learning forgiveness and who believe in restoration and reconciliation. There's a joy of learning to live with others who are learning repentance. So don't hear me saying, and I don't think David would suggest, we actually see proof of this, that, that life with the people of God is always easy. And yet, it should be our joy. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David declares he is satisfied in God alone. He delights in the people of God. And then as we keep reading, we see he recognizes the danger of, of putting hope in other would-be gods. Verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. So he's just made a reference to the people of God. There's this category. And then there's this category of those who I think the verse implies were once part of the people of God and yet now have turned and have run after other gods. He says their sorrows shall multiply. Now, there's some cultural context here. Recognize that in David's day, the worship of idols was prevalent. And there was these offerings they would make. They would sacrifice an animal. They would take its blood. They would pour it on an offering. David says, I won't participate. I, I won't Pour a blood offering for your idols. In fact, I won't even speak the names of these gods. Because to speak their names would be to acknowledge them, to give them credit they don't deserve. He says, I don't want any part of that. He's satisfied in God alone. He delights in the people of God. And he says, I will not turn to other gods. Should be a reminder for us to check our own hearts. And, and when we read things like pouring out blood to idols, I think it's easy to say, not doing that, right? Never even occurred to me. I am so far from pouring out blood for an idol. Couldn't get further away from that. And yet, we are all tempted idolaters. Tempted to bow to the God of money or power. Pulled to the altar of success or pleasure. Encouraged to worship people, to sacrifice at the altar of houses and cars and hobbies and entertainments. Fill in the blank for yourself. The question is, does God have our full allegiance? Or are you tempted to pour out your worship to another God? I think we have a warning here. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. But for David, at this point in his life, it is settled. His allegiance is unrivaled. 
He says, I'm committed to you. You are the only source of good. I'm committed to your people. They are my delight. I'm committed to worshiping you alone. I will go after no other gods. He keeps going. He's reflecting on God's provision. Look at verse 5. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. So here's the, here's the picture. Think of land. When the people of God came into the land that God had promised him, remember there's 12 tribes in the nation. The 12 tribes come into the land, and God gives them each a land, an inheritance. And that land was a defining part of their life. It's where they, it's where they got their livelihood. But notice what David says. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Let me give you another piece of cultural background here. When the 12 tribes came in and the land was divided, there was actually one tribe that wasn't given land. The, the tribe of Aaron, these, these were the, the priests. This particular tribe were to be the people who cared for the temple. This tribe was not given land. And listen to what God said he gives land to all, 11, all the other tribes, 11 of them, to the tribe of Aaron. He says this, Numbers 18, the Lord said to Aaron, you have no inheritance in the land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Now for them, they, they made their living off the offerings of the other 11 tribes that contributed. God cared for them, but he set them aside as priests and said, I'll be your inheritance. I'll be your portion. David is not of the tribe of Aaron, but he's expressing this, um, this confidence and this satisfaction in God. God, I don't need land. I don't need an inheritance. You're my portion. And then he says this, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. So picture a guy looking at his land and he sees that it is perfectly laid out. The lines, this is exactly the land I would want. Think perimeter lines. The lines have fallen in good places. It's just, it includes the river, right? it's, It's a beautiful piece of land. David says, the Lord is my portion. And the lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. He sees God as all he needs. A a beautiful inheritance. The Lord is everything to him. He's all satisfying. And he goes on. Verse 7, I I, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also my heart instructs me. There's another aspect of who God is to David. He's a refuge. He's a portion. And now we see he is a source of wisdom and counsel. Which is where we start to ask the question, who do we turn to for counsel? We have a barometer. Who do I go to when I need wisdom? Whose opinion matters the most? Whose counsel for me carries the most weight? David says, the Lord gives me counsel. 
It's a good example. I wonder if where you go first. When you think about how your life should be structured, what should be given priority, whose counsel do you seek first about how to parent your kids? When you think about your marriage and what that should look like, what marriage should look like, whose counsel do you seek first? When you think about vocation and work, when you think about your depression and the dark seasons of life, when you think about success and how to respond to blessing, as the people of God, we should receive our counsel from God. He's the one who instructs us on parenting and marriage and work. Responding to dark times and times of blessing, and the list goes on. As we read and meditate on his word, it should shape us. And that's not to say that we don't look to others. In fact, we're told that we should counsel one another with the word, right? We should speak the word to one another. But so often we can be tempted to run to all other places and, and count every other opinion above that of God's. I know God says this, but this. David says, no, your, your counsel is what I need. Your, your wisdom is what I long for. In the night also my heart instructs me, which I think is David's way of saying, I meditate on his word as I lie in bed. It's, it's there. I continue to meditate on it. It reminds me of Psalm 119. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So we have to ask this question to ourselves. What is my source of wisdom? Do we see the word of God as sufficient counsel for every aspect of our lives? Or is the Bible the last place we turn to? Consider how this is not just a list, but how it all flows together. If God is our only good, if he is our complete satisfaction, if he is our portion and our inheritance, doesn't it make sense that he would be the one that we would trust with every part of our lives? And that was the case for David. God is my refuge. He is my good. He is my portion. He is my inheritance. He is my counselor. And in verse 8, he is my protector. I have set the Lord always before me, because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. We come a bit full circle back to this idea of preservation or protection. David says, I feel secure because of the presence of God. Let me give you some more cultural insight here. He says, because he's at my right hand, I won't be shaken. So here's what, what I learned is that they would carry shields in their left hand, and in their right hand they would carry a sword. Going into battle, shield on the left, sword on the right. The king, for added protection, would put a strong man there on his right side. Shield on the left, sword in hand, best man right there, right? Protecting that side. Because he's at my right hand, I won't be shaken. God 
David goes into battle and God Almighty is the one at his right hand. God is the one standing in the position to fight his battles. Which gives him the confidence to say, I won't be shaken. I'm not scared. I'm not trembling. David knows that he can trust God to be his protector. Presently, he sees God this way. There seems to be a shift in verse 9 as he starts to look forward. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. David knows he can trust God with his life. I love that last part. My flesh dwells secure. It says, my whole being rejoices. We, we say things like, I'm happy from my head to my feet, right? <laughs> my, my whole being rejoices. It's not temporary joy. It's not conditional joy. And in, even as he considers the possibility of death, he trusts God. So we keep reading. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David doesn't have thoughts that he's going to avoid death. I think what he's saying is, I know in death I won't be forgotten. I won't be abandoned. And in that sense, I won't see corruption. When he thinks of death, he doesn't think of decay although that will happen to the physical body, David believes there's more beyond this life. I'm secure in you. My, my whole flesh is full of joy. I know that even in death, I will not be abandoned. Verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I told you at the start that this psalm is about trusting God now and in the future, and we get that all in one verse here. He sees God as his guide in this life and his hope of joy in the future. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. A little bit of joy. Half a cup of joy, partial joy, day of joy. No, fullness of joy. To have God as his guide and as his counselor and as his protector and as his portion, as his inheritance, fullness of joy. Now, we read things like this and we think, good for you, David. And yet the, the thing, the way we have to reevaluate and think is, was David's life perfect? No, it was hard. There were good days, but there was difficulty as well. David was a man like you and I. But even in the pain, he has set his joy on God. Don't forget that the psalm started with, preserve me. He, he felt the need to be protected, to be preserved. And yet through it all, he sees God as sufficient and as the source of joy. What's the pleasure? What gives joy? David says it's in God. It's maybe hard to understand, 
But it's true that there is nothing more satisfying than being fully content in him. And knowing that even when life ends, joy continues. It's a good promise. And it brings us to the end of the psalm. You think, well, that was easy. Hold on. Let me ask this question. Are the kinds of things that David's describing here available to us? Who can claim God as their refuge? Who can have the hope of eternal pleasure? Can we have the same kind of confidence in God that David did? It's an important question, right? That's great if that's David's story, but can that really be our story too? How do we qualify for that? In order to answer that question, I want to show you another aspect of the psalm, another way of coming at it. So here's what I need you to do. You can hold your, your finger there in Psalm 16 and then turn to Acts chapter 2. I want to show you a connection here that's informative and will help us answer the question, could this be true for me too? In Acts 2, here's the context. Jesus has just recently risen from the dead and returned to heaven. Forty days after Christ returns, Peter preaches to a large crowd that gathered for Pentecost. David read as part of the sermon earlier. I'm going to read it again. And what I want you to listen for are phrases that Peter uses. See, Peter's preaching a sermon on Psalm 16, or at least it's one of his texts. And I want you to hear what David says about Psalm 16, or excuse me, Peter. Man, too many people involved today. Listen to what Peter says about what David says, Psalm 16. Speaking to this gathering, he says, men of Israel, hear these words, chapter 2, verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. Peter is not a fearful preacher. This man has some courage. You killed him. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him. Now listen to what David says. Quoting Psalm 16. But quoting Psalm 16 as the words of Jesus, not as David. Notice this. David says concerning Jesus. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Sound familiar? Psalm 16. And Peter says that Psalm 16 is the words of Jesus. That as Jesus went to the cross, he knew he would not be shaken because the Father was at his right hand. That as he endured the cross, his heart would be glad and rejoice in hope. Why? Because 
the father would not abandon his soul to Sheol, and his body would not be given to decay, and he would return to the presence and the fullness of joy in God. Which is incredible. But we should ask, does Peter think that David is writing about himself or about Jesus? Let's keep reading. Verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, who wrote Psalm 16, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that Christ was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Quoting Psalm 110. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you have crucified. So David reads Psalm 16. And he sees Jesus. But I preached it as David's experience. Is that right? Is that wrong? I've got, I've got some affirmation in the back. You have one finger in Psalm 16, another in Psalm 2, or Acts 2. If you have another finger, let's go to Acts 13. Hopefully this gives us some clarity. In Acts 2, we have Peter speaking. Now in Acts 13, we have Paul speaking. And again, we're going to read and listen for Psalm 16. Okay? Starting in verse 26, Acts 13. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among who fear God, to us has been sent the message of the salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. He says, the Jews, they read the Old Testament, they didn't understand them, they killed the Messiah. All right, verse 28. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up from, with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it was written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he was raised from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So God says he's giving Jesus the blessings of David. Verse 35. Therefore, he says in another psalm, I'll let you guess which one, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after having served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So we still have the question. 
Psalm 16 about Jesus or David, and can we apply it to ourselves? Verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by everyone who believes, by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. I'm just going to give you my conclusion. Psalm 16 was true of David. And yet, as he wrote through the Spirit, it was a prophecy of Christ. And yet, Christ is the first fruits of all that will come to those who are in him. So, because God did not abandon Jesus in death, because God kept Christ's flesh secure, because he did not let his Holy One see corruption, Now all of those of us who are in him likewise receive the same promise of resurrection. And this is the gospel we believe, isn't it? That all those who repent of their sins and believe in Christ receive the benefits that Christ has secured. And maybe you just thought, I don't know what just happened in the last 10 minutes. There's a lot there. It's okay. Know this. Through Christ, you can have all the hope that David has professed in Psalm 16. 1 Corinthians 15, we read it earlier, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has become the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all dies, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, all those who belong to Christ. And Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die, shall never see corruption. Psalm 16 is about Jesus and David and all those who put their faith in Christ. Let me try to put a bow on it. Because Jesus died and God raised him from the dead, if you believe in him, he can be your refuge. Because Jesus lives, you can say with confidence, Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Because of his death, Jesus has made it possible for us to come together and say, my delight is in the saints. Because of the work of Christ, we can see God as our portion and our cup. Because of Christ, we can truly say the lines have fallen for me in beautiful places. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we can receive the counsel of the Lord and the help of his spirit. Because of Jesus, we will not be shaken and our flesh can dwell secure. Because of Jesus, we will not be abandoned to Sheol and our bodies will be rescued and resurrected from decay. Because of Jesus... And only because of Jesus, we can have the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. It's not automatic. The call is to turn to Christ. To access this joy and this hope through him. Because on your own, friend, you are an enemy of God. And yet, God sent his son 
to die. He rose from the dead, and now all who repent of their sins and trust in him are reconciled to God and receive all the benefits that we've been talking about this morning. Now and forever. And friend, if you count yourself among the saints, how could we keep this good news to ourselves? Pleasures forevermore. Friend, your neighbors, your coworkers, they are searching for joy. It's available. The greatest joy, everlasting joy, is available in Christ, and we've been called to share this hope. And finally, we must ask ourselves the question, are we living as if these things are true? Do you see God as your ultimate and supreme good? Do you find joy in his people? Do you worship him alone or do you give yourself to other gods? Do you go to him for wisdom and guidance? Is he your protector? Do you trust him to lead the path of your life? Do you believe that in him there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore? I would hope that we would be able to say with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is available to you in Christ. Let's pray together. God.